When you hear of teams in the NFL and and coaches calling the top 10 or top 15 plays, they typically don't include third down. So third down is a separate category. So like my top 15 are really first and second down calls, and rarely are they called one through 15. That Okay. But they are going to be probably the top 15 plays early on in the game that you're going to – first and second down, the first two plays of the game, they're definitely getting called. Got it. That makes – Other than that, it's going to vary. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And we are back. It's been a month. It's been like uh, like five weeks, I think, since the last show, huh? Like, yeah, like a whole month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was uh, like the 28th of May or something like that was yeah. our last podcast. So we're almost like exactly a month. Lots of things have happened. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I have now officially been to Greece uh, and Mykonos. Sorry. Yeah, I was uh, out there for the honeymoon. And, uh, and we've got new uh, intro music. That's also different. Um, really, it was born out of one very, very kind of selfish thing. And that's that we really didn't want to get sued uh, is yeah. really what it comes down to. Because technically, there's like it's a little ambiguous. You can kind of play the fence around whether or not you should use you know, music that you don't have licensed. But um, we certainly did not license all that Drake music. <laughs> No, as it turns out, we we don't have that kind of cash flow. So, no, um, no, definitely probably not. need to to play it a little bit more safe going forward, which is uh, kind of a shame. But I don't yeah. know. Hopefully, let let us know what you think. We're gonna play around with it for a little bit. I think before we we kind of settle on something that will will stick to long term. So yeah, let uh, us know what you think about that opening yeah. one. There's this actual this wonderful site that that gives you kind of a. Uh, uh, God, I'm just forgetting words. This always happens whenever we take a hiatus. <laughs> it always happens. But there's a site that lets you get royalty-free music that you can play. It's a guy who makes it all, and you basically give him a fee, and then it, you get a license that you can use it for podcast or film or whatever the case may be. So, And it's, uh, as you might be able to guess, a little bit more manageable than Drake. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. uh, I don't think he's going to give us the, the Niner discount. <laughs> Probably Despite <not>. the <laughs> fact that Steph Curry was in a song, I think, uh, I think he's moved on. <laughs> Uh, but if you are just tuning in for the very first time, well, you're welcome. We're here. We're back. Uh, and we're going to kick off with what's happened really since the last time that we were here. It is episode 153 of the Better Rivals podcast. And we've got a scheme month that we're bringing for you that we do every year right before training camp. It's basically four or five weeks where we kind of give you some schematic things that we think are interesting that might be important for the upcoming season. And so today, we're going to start that scheme month, and it's going to be all about developing an offensive game plan. But first, we've got to catch David up with what's been happening over mini camp and OTAs. Because <laughs> David, you were you ostriched it. You did like did not even pay attention to what was happening. I kind of feel bad now uh, to have to say this out loud because you, I mean, you went on a honeymoon. True story. And somehow paid more attention to the happenings over the last yeah. month than I did. Um, which I mean, look, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you, you kind of know my feelings on this stuff. Um, I, I think a lot of it, uh, is just there to pass the time really to, to put it lightly. So, um, yeah, I, I haven't really, you know, I've, I've obviously gotten some major highlights, like gotten some of the big stuff. I did watch the Colin Kaepernick, like, uh, initial, like the first time they spoke to the media and went long, like talked to him for like 20 minutes or whatever it was. Like I did watch that bit. Um, but really haven't been, you know, paying too much attention to the day to day. So, 
yeah, I guess we'll we'll see if there's anything major that happened. So let me catch up, David. I, I think probably maybe just the three things from the month that we've been away that might be interesting. One, Jared Hain, uh, no longer playing American football. Uh, he had issues learning Chip's playbook, and now he is playing sevens for uh, Fiji in the Olympics. Um, so Jer- uh, the, the Hain playing experiment is officially grounded. So I thought that was interesting um, that it, he kind of specifically mentioned that the Chip Kelly playbook was like this kind of intense, difficult for him to learn thing. Um, and the, the, the comment that he made about, you know, other players picking up a little bit more quickly because they had experience to it in college and, and all that sort of stuff certainly makes sense because, you know, at this point uh, is spread related offenses or certainly predominant offense in college football. Um, but also like there's certain things that we know about Chip Kelly's offense that kind of, make it easier to learn than most NFL offenses, at least, right? Like, we we know that uh, communication is simplified and, and some of the really unnecessarily long play calls that you have from, uh, you know, really a lot of them stem from the West Coast offense and, and all that, where you're kind of spelling out everybody's individual assignment within your play call, and it ends up being just absurdly long. Chip Kelly doesn't do that stuff. The the play calls are very simple, and the communication system that they have for the, uh, you know, the up-tempo offense is very simple. So it was just kind of interesting that that was something that he referenced that contributed to his decision to not play professional football anymore. Well, I love how he also backtracked too. He he tweeted out a picture of like a note that he had written on his phone where he was like, man, the media just likes to take stuff out of context. But I feel like his quote was pretty (laughs) like well contextualized. This is the full quote. He says, quote, I just think with Chip's playbook, it's such an intense playbook that it would just take too much time. Me not having that college history, I think a lot of the guys adapt to it a lot faster because they've had the college playbooks. I was always behind the nine ball, just learning in general. The guys playing in college were just that far ahead. And despite the fact that he's talking about nine ball. Yeah, one, get that nine ball shit out of here. It's, okay? <laughs> it's eight ball. <laughs> David right, that's re- why you didn't last in professional football. Hashtag hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And we're back. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I feel like that's a pretty contextualized quote that, that, that you can't yeah, really take that out of context. I don't see how you like misconstrue that at yeah. all. Like, yeah, I, I don't, it's pretty straightforward. He was pretty clear. Uh, in oh, that. he's got an Australian accent. What he meant to oh. say was, you know, I just like playing, you know, sevens better, but whatever. <laughs> um, Hayne Plain is done. He always had an uphill battle. If anyone was going to use him, it was Chip Kelly and Chip Kelly was just like, well, didn't even know how I was going to use him. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Yep. Uh, so next big one, which I think is going to be right up your alley, uh, is that Jeff Driscoll could be special. <laughs> and <laughs> so there's the story and then there's the sub story. The real story is that Jeff Driscoll has been playing on special teams coverage units, which is kind of cool because, well, it's a quarterback playing special teams. Uh, but two, it kind of opens up some fake plays, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the thing that really got me was the fact that everyone was a flutter on Twitter about how, oh, that means that Jeff Driscoll could start. Oh, man, he could beat out Colin Kaepernick and Blaine Gabbard. Oh, man, this is going to be great. Is he really that good? Oh, man, Louisiana Tech. Oh, God. (laughs) It just, I mean, that's how bad it got. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, he's not that good for for one. Um, I mean, uh, you know, a couple things, obviously. One, it's hilarious to me that it, just the, the thought of a quarterback playing on a coverage unit 
uh, is just fantastic. Like I love in a game. In every a game. bit of it. Because in practice yeah. they do. Sure. Practice whatever. Don't care. I want to see Driscoll out there on kick coverage, streaking down the numbers, just ready to hit somebody, more likely ready to get blown up. Yeah. Like uh, it's gonna be have great. a huge target on And us. then and so right, like who's not going out of their way, like, yeah, I'm gonna fuck up that quarterback. Like that's what every single person on the the return coverage unit is like got that in their mind. They're going out of their way to just knock it, knock him out. So one, it's just hilarious to think about that stuff. Um, assuming he doesn't really get hurt, obviously. Come on, guys. Um, two, like how much shit does he get to talk if he actually just like lays some guy out, like lays some return around immediately. Um, it's going to be amazing. like never ending. Like for the, the, the rest of his life, he's going to be able to talk shit about that time that as a quarterback, he went down and like, blew somebody up but but i think there are also some like you know more serious things that, that we can kind of take away from this potentially that that are a little bit interesting um we we know from chip kelly's kind of past and, and from his public comments and things like that that he does place a, a pretty heavy emphasis on special teams and his special teams units typically fared very well in philadelphia uh they ranked 10th in dvoa last year they ranked first the year before that um, so he's had some success with his special teams units. We actually know firsthand some of that success because in the game uh, against the Eagles a couple of years ago, um, when Chip Kelly was still the coach there, the only reason the Eagles were still in that game was because of their special teams units. Um, I believe if they blocked a punt and picked it up, a returner for a touchdown, right? And yep. then also Darren Sproles returned a punt for a touchdown. So their special teams like is an emphasis for chip Kelly and his teams uh, typically. And we also know that he's a little bit more willing to take some unconventional risks um, compared to a lot of other NFL coaches. So I think the idea of him as a personal protector on the punt coverage unit is especially interesting because that opens up a lot of different possibilities for like different fakes and things like that, that they can employ over the course of a season um, that could actually end up having an impact on games. Now, one question I had, if this was indeed a strategy that we would employ, is about the utilization of the third quarterback in a game. Because if Driscoll's going to make the team, and I think he probably will, he will make it as a third quarterback. Um, if he makes the active, um, or the 53, I should say. Now, in order to be, you know, and the rules recently changed, right? Because now you can dress your third quarterback and he's he counts as one of, like, the rules around the third quarterback are a little different now, but... Maybe it's just me and my youthful brain. This is what's stuck. I always thought that I think, once the third quarterback went in because of injury to quarterbacks one and two, the other two quarterbacks couldn't then come back in. But I think that rule may have changed. So the one that I'm pretty sure that changed is what you used to be able to do is have your uh, have a third quarterback that was like dressed that didn't but, really count yeah. towards because it's uh, you, you have your 53, but only 46, I believe, get addressed. Yeah, and so what they did was increase or like so before it was less than that so if it's 46 now or 47 now it was like a man or two less than that before but what you were able to do is your your third or your emergency quarterback didn't count towards that number and then you could bring him in if the first two got hurt they what they changed is rather than having to essentially be forced into having a third quarterback as is one of your spots there um they increased the number of active players that you could have on game day and they made it to where that if if you choose to carry three quarterbacks, he's just one of those players. Uh, it, it you don't get an extra spot, especially for that. 
But now say that, you know, let, let's say the rule still is that if that if you do have a third quarterback, then you still have the injury rules. If that quarterback plays in a traditional set, then, you know, the then the other two quarterbacks cannot come in. Let's say you go out there. He is the personal protector on a special teams play. And then the team shifts into more of a traditional formation, because at that point, then you have your entire offense at your disposal. Um, now it gets a little interesting. And so, I mean, I'm not sure what the rules are, and we don't need to dig super deep if someone out there on the Twitters knows what the rules are. Definitely tweet at me. You can get me at Better Rivals. David, where can they get you? Uh, at David Newman with an underscore. So let us know what the rules are if you know for real, for realsies, um, and then we'll figure it out kind of from there. Yeah, I mean, I think my guess, like we kind of talked about this a little bit before, like you see punters get named kind of the the emergency quarterback and then or get designated as that, and then they run fakes or they go into a more traditional set, and, and all of a sudden the other quarterbacks are still able to come out there and play. So. My guess initially, you know, without, again, knowing the rule 100 percent, is that this shouldn't be a problem. But obviously that would would change things if it were uh, within the rule book to where if he took a snap from a traditional set, even on fourth down out of a fake punt situation that that prevented quarter your your top quarterback from coming in. Obviously, that changes things. The NFL has done dumber things. True story. Yeah. Uh, so there were lots of reports coming from minicamp and there were a couple players that, you know, you kind of just based on the reports that you would read, you think to yourself, okay, this player looks like they're doing exactly what I expected or perhaps this player is not living up to the expectation that I would have had based on the reports coming out of camp. So David, were there any players that jumped out at you off of the beat reporter uh, reports that you thought to yourself, all right, th- this player is doing well or uh, perhaps the, the opposite, this player is doing poorly? So from what I have seen, um, there there were actually kind of one of, of each, good and bad, um, that stuck out a little bit to me. One was Jimmy Ward. I mean, he was a player that I think, you know, we've always been a little bit higher on than kind of the general 49ers fan base. Um, you know, we thought that kind of he got a bad rap because he had one really, really terrible game very early in his career and got destroyed by Brandon Marshall. And, and people kind of had that image ingrained in their head and it was very difficult for them to get it out. Um, when the reality was that kind of after that he was, you know, fairly solid during his rookie year before he got hurt. And then, you know, uh, has been a, a very kind of consistent quality player since then. And then we actually got a, a chance to see him break out a little bit towards the end of last season. You know, we had some big games from him where he was able to make kind of some impact plays because that was something that was missing is we didn't see a lot of, you know, the, the interceptions, turnovers, sacks, like any of those kind of big plays that really stick with you. Um, it was just kind of this consistent, I'm going to do my job and and kind of be where I need to be, play in and play out for the most part, um, thing that doesn't always get noticed. And so the fact that, one, he's you know really being looked at as an outside cornerback and not somebody that's just in the slot or you know potentially playing safety, um, I think is really interesting. And also he got you know pretty pretty much universally positive reviews uh, from that. And I, I think anything, I, I think the the quote from, uh, you know, defensive coordinator was that essentially he's one of our best 11 and we need to figure out a way to get him on the field. And that's something that I agree with entirely. Like, I, I think that he is absolutely one of the best 11 players on this defense and however they can get him on the field and find a way for him to make an impact makes a lot of sense. So that was on, on the positive side. Um, on the negative side was Trent Brown. So this was a guy that, uh, you know, a lot of people 
we're kind of expecting to take over that right tackle role, assuming that Anthony Davis doesn't come back, which, you know, who knows what's up with him. But provided that, that Anthony Davis didn't come back, that was the guy that most people slotted in at that right tackle spot. But the thing that kind of caught me before, you know, we even got really too far into the offseason program was that he didn't really seem to be a great fit for Chip Kelly's offense and for the zone-based scheme that that he runs predominantly. So uh, I had kind of my questions going in, and then you saw a lot of negative things kind of coming uh, coming out from a lot of the, the camp reports and the OTAs and all that about him being out of shape and, and not really looking like he fit in very well with what this offense is going to want to do. So uh, it was kind of taking this thing that I already was a little bit skeptical of and then adding, you know, fuel to the fire and, and really not looking great for Trent Brown. So uh, that right tackle position is a little bit more, I think, up in the air than a lot of people thought it was heading into the offseason program. So he would kind of be my uh, my bad guy. He's going to give us another year of Eric Pierce. I know he is. It's yeah. like it's oh, yeah. oh. Um, for me. I think, you know, I, Jimmy Ward is definitely a player that I thought had some some positive buzz, but. Um, I think Carlos Hyde is also someone that is, you know, everything looks great when there's no pads and you're not having to worry about getting hit uh, because you can't get injured. Um, so, yeah. well, well, I mean, you can get injured, but not in the in the contact kind of way. So for me, the player that's that's been looking good, at least in terms of reports, has been Carlos Hyde. This is an offensive system that is effectively tailor-made for his running style. I mean, this is what he did when he was with Urban Meyer at Ohio State, uh, and he did really, really well. And, and so I... I can only imagine that he's he's flourishing in this type of offense. But for me, the player that got some of the negative camp reports was DeAndre Smelter. This is a player that had a full year to basically get healthy um, and get in shape. And the reports are supposedly that he didn't look in shape. He was you know he wasn't sure what his assignments were. Um, he kind of looked a little lost out there. And granted, I'm willing to give him effectively a rookie pass because. While it is one thing to be a part of a team and get those mental reps and get your nose in a playbook, it is entirely different to go and do that on the field with your body, especially learning a new playbook. So there's still aren't, weren't there also like some kind of nagging injury, the things hamstring with him injury as well. Yeah, and hamstrings. Okay. And this is, again, just my brain and the connections that it's made. But whenever I see a hamstring in minicamp, that to me screams like conditioning. It, it just I screams mean, like yeah, someone who, yeah, who like you know, they pulled up or, or they just they didn't get their body ready for the kind of stress they were going to put on it at minicamp. Right. The soft tissue stuff are, yeah. are, are definitely you're I mean, we're not doctors here, yeah, ob- obviously. No, no. Um, but those seem to be kind of the preventable injuries. Right. If yeah. you take care of your body, you do the things that you're supposed to do those soft tissue injuries don't really occur. Yep. And and we di- and we can say this definitively because we both took a uh, night class in nursing. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I played football in high school. That's obviously enough, right? Yeah. And that's what most people use yeah. as I watched qualifications. Um, I watched ER a lot, I think as a kid. Yeah. Um I know what code blue means. I know how to use a defibrillator. Um and I know that if you get a if you get a fat dude with body hair on him, that you have to duct tape his body hair off before you can defibrillate him. That is a true story. I learned that in CPR training because dudes be furry. All I was thinking about when you said that is that how much I hate guarding those dudes in basketball, like pick up <laughs> basketball games. Like the super hairy, sweaty guy, I'm just like, man, I'm just going to let you score. I don't even give a shit. I don't want to touch you. It's part, it's part of their strategy. It's part <laughs> of their strategy. But So th- that pretty much wraps up the news. But one of the things that we always talk about is how the, the quotes from minicamp, everyone like hinges on every word. 
and everyone is super glued into what happens and you know what the players say, what the coaches say. And, and even we did it to a certain degree here with some of the camp reports of the beat writers. But I thought it would be interesting to play a little game with David, who was kind of away from the, the 49ers news cycle, and play a little OTA quote or not. Or I guess it's a mini camp quote or not. I'm going to read a series of quotes. And David is going to have to decide whether or not they are a real quote from a player or coach uh, or someone associated with you know, some 49er related quote from minicamp or the minicamp time frame uh, or if it's fake. Uh, and so we'll see if uh, if David uh, should be good. Yeah, we'll see if David uh, has. I, I got a couple lined up here. So so here we go, David. Here's your first quote. Tell me whether or not this is a real OTA quote. Don't look at my screen. Don't look not at my looking. Screen. All right. Not Officially looking. not looking. All right. He's got the the blindfold that is honesty is what it is. It's it's a chastity blindfold. Um, American hero. Okay, that's right. You can trust me. He's drinking out of a koozie. I shit you not. <laughs> I, bu- I bought this for for <laughs> I bought this for Fourth of July. He's drinking a koozie that says it's time to get star spangled hammered. <laughs> True story. <laughs> but all right, all right. So here's here's the first quote. The first quote. You tell me if it's real or not. I'm really impressed with the way the team is reacting to the practices. They're moving really well. There's some pep in their step. They're looking real loose. Is that real or not? I'm going to go not real. You are correct. That is indeed fake. Boom. I, I wrote that. I wrote that literally like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> All right. I feel like I'm going to be good at this game. All right. Here's another one. I think he's close to having a breakout year. He's got to stay healthy. But if he does that, he could easily have a Pro Bowl year. I could go either way. Um, I'm going to go real quote about Carlos Hyde. Uh, that is indeed a fake quote. I wrote that fake? myself. All right. Yep. All right. Yep. All right. I hit you up with two Damn fakes. It. Yep. Now let's see. Am, am I going to go with like the third fake in a row? Yeah. Am I going to go with, with something real? All right. Here we go. <laughs> um, I could tell when I watched the film that he's a hard worker. He's going to come ready to play every day. I'm going to go, you're, you're not going fake three times in a row. That's a real quote. That is a real quote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the head games. All right. That's yeah. jo- that was Joshua Garnett. That, that was close. I was like, uh, I could go either way yeah. with that one. That was Joshua Garnett talking about Alex Balducci. Um, all right. Here we go. So, so far you're what that was. That was a fourth one. I'm two and one. Yeah. You're two and one. All right. Um, let's see. Which one am I going to go with next? Okay. Here we go. Uh, you like corners that have that dog in them, that confidence in him. He's got that. He's competitive, and you've just got to have that in you. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> that's a good, good off-season quote right there. Um, real quote. It is indeed real. Indeed, that was a uh, def- defensive backs coach Jeff Halfley um, talking about Robinson, um, the <laughs> string bean. Okay, that's not who I would. I would. I would have guessed like. Uh, <laughs> Like maybe Tart or yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or maybe like Dante Johnson or Jimmy Ward or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but he's talking about I'm pretty sure he's talking about uh, Robinson in that quote. Um, all right, here's another one. <laughs> there's there's a couple here that I'm waiting to get to. I just don't know if we should do them now. Um all right. It's about trying to be as consistent as possible. That's all technique based. You just continue to work on that and everything else will come. Hmm. Real quote. It is indeed a real quote. That was Tory Smith. Oh yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That's yep. a very Tory Smith. It's a bit more articulate. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
<clears throat> All right, we'll do one more, then we'll get into a couple other ones uh, that I think are going to be hilarious. Um, we want competition. That's part of the core of this team. Competition makes everyone better, and it's an even match right now. We'll see what happens once the pads come on. Oh God, that's that could. Oh, that's good. Uh, fake quote. That is indeed fake. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. So we're gonna go. I think we're gonna do maybe two or three more. Uh, but one. Uh, here's the quote: Walked into Bed Bath and Beyond near Palo Alto. Was like, <laughs> dang, is that Ciara? Wait, is that Russell Wilson? You never know who you see out here. Um. I'm going to go that's a real quote because I saw and I was I, very I, upset about yeah. the fact that Russell Wilson was sitting, what it was, he was fucking courtside at the Warriors game in the finals. I yep. was not happy about that. So that's a real quote. That is indeed a real quote. That's Joshua Garnett because he ran into Russell Wilson at Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, <laughs> all right. What was, what was Joshua Garnett doing at Bed Bath & Beyond? He was, uh, he was, I think, oh no, it was Russell Wilson who was there helping his sister move into the, her Stanford dorm or whatever. Sometimes you got to go to Bed Bath & Beyond, man. Sometimes you got to yeah. get a, a Turvis tumbler. Those things keep your drinks frosty. This isn't, this isn't even a sponsored <laughs> statement. I just like Turvis tumblers, but don't put sunblock on and then hold your Turvis tumbler if you're out at the beach or out at a lake. You will, you will fuck it up. Don't do it. But I don't even know what you're talking about. A right Turvis now. tumbler. It's the double insulated like or double walled insulated cup. The, the clear one yeah, that I always drink from. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. The one that has the. I've got two of them. One of them has a Niner logo on it, and it looks yeah. like someone like totally messed it up or put like cream on it or something. I use those all the time because someone grabbed it on the boat when they had sunblock on their hands, like a freaking fool. Done fucked up. Seriously. Um, but all right, here's another one. Yo, this dude is a son of Israel. Without him, we look up <laughs> to him for inspiration in life. I need you to say confident things about yourself so that we can stand strong. Oh my god! I want it to be a real quote so bad. Please tell me that it's a real quote. I need a definitive answer. I'm gonna go real quote. That is a real quote. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? It was a fan that is literally yelling that to Colin Kaepernick. They're oh literally yelling that. You, I can't believe you haven't seen this. You haven't seen this. Oh my god! I just let me let me just. I'm gonna try and cue it up. I'm gonna do it here live because I did not plan on on playing this for you. But um, yeah, he. No, because you can't hear that part. It's really, really muffled because there's like a truck that's coming. But this is the audio. um, And hopefully I'm going to try not to blow your ear holes out, folks, when I turn this on for the first time. You're going to restore that power that you once exuded. The God God was with you that year, right? He took you all the way, right? You got that power again. And I need you to be disciplined. I've always had that power. Look, hold up. You are great as Cam Newton. You're greater. You're greater, bro. We ain't the same person. Uh, Hey, are you greater? Cam Newton is great, bro. (laughs) He's great. No, are you greater? You, you great, bro. That's it. I know. That's it. That's it. I need you to. How can you know without with discipline? You need to have that discipline. He's been disciplined. Yes, I'm gonna get a picture with him and we'll go. Oh my god. Yeah, dude. This uh, is like this is like I don't know where this is. It looks like maybe in a BART station or like behind some kind of bar or something. I don't know, but that fool is clearly belligerent. Clearly belligerent. And he goes on this rampage where he's like, You a son of Israel. 
And I'm just like, I don't know how. And Colin Kaepernick just stands there with a smile on his face, just like, yeah, like, that's okay. Like, I'm just going to go ahead and, like, be here and, and be normal. How <laughs> how he doesn't handle, like, how he handles that with such grace, I'm just, I'm impressed. I really am. Oh, that's the most impressive thing that Colin Kaepernick's done in a while. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think you only got, what, one wrong? Yeah. I was, I was yeah, good at I think that you game. were five or six yeah. and one. Uh, clearly, I write way worse fake OTA quotes than uh, I thought I did. No, I'm just uh, really excellent at guessing things. <laughs> um, that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, that about does the, the mini camp wrap up because that's really all there was. Um, so now we're going to get deep into the throngs of scheme month. This is one of the most fun months that we do, I think, because it gives us a chance to break beyond the normal format, talk about some stuff that's really interesting, uh, and, and really convey what we're learning and what we have learned to y'all so that at the end of the day, we can all be a little bit more informed and better football watchers. And uh, as the title of the podcast says, perhaps a better rival. So we decided that we were going to talk about building an offensive game plan. Because over the course of the last couple of seasons, game the game plan and the way it's built has been a hot topic of conversation, whether it be about Greg Roman making crappy game plans or whether it be about Jim Tomsula not knowing what a game plan is. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's been a topic of conversation, especially when you get to those critical calls, those calls where you're like, oh, it's just, you know, you got to bl- you got to blame the game plan. It, you know, there was a bad call. It was bad execution. You know, th- there are a lot of things I think that go into it. And we've got some really good source material that helps break down how to build that game plan from a coach's perspective. There's two bits of source material that we leaned on in order to put this stuff together. One is Brian Billick's Developing an Offensive Game Plan, uh, which is a book that he wrote something like in 2003. I think it was 2001. So what's interesting about that then is that, so it it seemed like, because we both also have Finding the Winning Edge, which is Bill Walsh's book, um, and that's the tome that a lot of NFL coaches build their program around. Um, And he's got lots of bits in there about building a game plan. And it's very, very clear that Brian Billick's book is heavily influenced from what Bill Walsh wrote in Finding the Winning Edge. To the point where I would say that the book that Brian Billick wrote is really just an extension of what Bill Walsh wrote in Finding the Winning Edge with examples from the Minnesota Vikings. And and, and that's really, I, I think both are very much in concert and can work in concert and share the exact same philosophy. They use a lot of the same statistics. In some cases, they even use the same, you know, phrases that is used in one versus the other. And so I I think actually, yeah, uh, Billick actually helped write. Yeah, he did. He did. So um, what he would do is he would actually um, record Bill Walsh talking and record his speeches and then actually go and type out the manuscript and, and put it all together. So Billick is, it, it makes sense that the two are very, very close. So what we're going to be talking about here, how we are talking about building a game plan is really how Bill Walsh built a game plan and how it was written down by Brian Billick in, in a couple of different books. And I, and I think it still applies because that's really one of the, the lasting impacts of, you know, the West Coast offense. It's not necessarily the the specific plays and concepts themselves, even though you obviously still see a lot of that stuff, you know, in, in nearly every single offense. Remember the um, term mesh concept. <laughs> You'll hear it a lot. It's I, I mean, yeah, a lot of the those base West Coast uh, concepts are kind of everywhere now. They're they're really pretty ubiquitous in, in terms of like the short passing game, especially like everybody really used a lot of the same stuff. But um when it comes to like the planning aspect and, and all of the off the field stuff and everything that goes into 
you know, planning practices and, and how you're going to install the offense and, and everything kind of there that we don't really get to see a lot of. That's really where a lot of the West Coast offense principles you, you see, you know, almost exactly, um, I think, with, with some teams, you know, kind of depending on where they they did, you know, a, a lot of their learning when they were a young coach. So uh, I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of things that still apply. And at the very least, it gives us a, a kind of basic general understanding of how, you know, coaches go about doing this kind of kind of stuff. So at the very top, then the, the thing that we want to begin with is the primary purpose of a game plan. And this may seem like an obvious place to start or it may seem like, oh, well, we know what the purpose of a game plan is. But there's a quote that is used over and over again, but both by Billick and by Bill Walsh, because ultimately the, the game plan prepares the players for what they're going to see on game day. Ultimately, the plan is there to help enable playing with confidence and playing without hesitation. And to do that, the coaches need to provide the players with the information necessary to reduce uncertainty. That phrase, reducing uncertainty, is pretty much like highlighted in big bold letters with like lights all around it, like <laughs> everywhere. It's like you want to reduce uncertainty as much as humanly possible. And Bill Walsh believed that you did that through preparation. And the expressed part of that preparation was the game plan. Yeah, and and I think so. You see that from the players' perspective, right? Like that's, and and that's really I think the most important part is is you need to have your players ready to go, right? They need to be prepared for what they're going to see on game day. They need to be, uh, they need to have an idea of like what defenses they're going to see and and what kind of alignments they're going to see and all that that sort of thing. Um, but it also helps the coaching staff prepare, uh, especially whoever the play caller is ultimately going to be. Um, they have a plan and, and they have kind of thought out all of these different scenarios that they might face on game day. That way, when those situations arise, you know, they're not scrambling. They're not trying to find an answer. They have uh, a plan in place for, you know, what they're going to do in those situations. So, you know, obviously it, it remains to be seen whether that's a good plan. But certainly when things get heated and, and you're in these critical situations, you don't want to have to be kind of, you know, thinking off the cuff and, and just making decisions on a whim there, you want to have the preparation, have the work that you did during the week, you know, influence those decisions. And so that's really the big thing from the coaching perspective is it prepares them for all of the various situations that they're going to see on game day so that they have a plan in place to execute in those situations. And one of the things that I found interesting just about Brian Billick and the way he broke it out is when some of this stuff happens. I've always been curious about timelines and, and the logistics of it, but Monday and Tuesday is really when the game plan is begun to get put together. Um, they're looking at game film. They've got some meetings. They put together certain packages and, and certain parts of the game plan in, in situations, which we'll talk about in a bit. Wednesday is when they start installing it. Thursday is when they kind of install most of it. Uh, and then that's when they start talking about red zone packages, their backup packages, things like that. Um, Friday, they've got some more meetings and they've got the reviews for checks and alerts. Um, and then Saturday really is just the kind of walkthrough and checking into hotels. So really, over the course of a regular game week, you're talking about devising a plan over Monday, Tuesday, installing most of it Wednesday, Thursday, and a little bit on Friday, doing a quick check on Saturday, and then ready to go on Sunday. It, and you're going to hear us talk about this a couple times this podcast, but that's not a lot of time. No, 
and no, and that's not. why you know that's why coaches grind and that's why you know it, it's important to get this stuff early and often and and the players think about how much they have to absorb in in those given days and and with limited practice reps i just always think that that's fascinating because i always imagined i think when i was a kid that players could like just practice and practice and practice and they had all this time and they had all these things to do and it's like no, they really don't. They really don't. <laughs> and that's one of the things that you hear a lot, you know, from coaches about like the new CBA and stuff is that you have even, you know, when that book was written, they had more time to prepare and, and to do everything, especially during the offseason and installing more padded offense. practices and training camps. Yeah. Like you had more time to do all of that stuff than you do now. So now they're e- even working with shorter timelines to, to get all of that stuff accomplished. So, yeah, it really is. You're trying to pack a lot of information into a short period of time. Um, there, there really are a number of different things that they're going to consider when building that game plan. But I think kind of a few of the, the, the big ones, right. A few of the things that are painting broad strokes there that, that are a little bit easier for us to understand. I mean, one, it really starts with how much offense do you need, right? How much can my players, uh, be taught in a, in a given week, right? So it's, what do I need to be able to account for all the various situations that I'm going to, uh, you know, potentially see on Sunday, but also like, can I, can I accomplish that while also keeping it, um, concise enough to be able to, to teach my players this information. The next one is going to be like, who are the key personnel in my attack, right? Sometimes that's going to be obvious, right? If you're the Patriots, Rob Gronkowski is going to be a key part of your attack every single week, but sometimes that's going to change, right? Depending on the opponent, if the, the opponent has, a terrible nickel cornerback and that, that plays in the slot. Okay. Maybe that week you want to emphasize your slot receiver in the game plan and, and, and find more ways to get them involved. So it's going to change a little bit. Obviously the star players are kind of exceptions. They're going to be big parts week in week out. Um, but there's still things there that they need to think through as to who is going to kind of be featured in this game plan. Um, they think about things like when is the best time to run certain plays or, or certain sequences of plays, right? Um, why will plays be successful against certain opponents and defenses? Um, and I think in, in other words, really that's what defensive alignments, what schemes are best to run this particular play? Like what is this going to be effective against? Um, and then you're also thinking about things like how often can I run this concept? How often can I run this play? Um, is it something that I think that I can continue to run successfully six, seven times in a game? Like if you ask my high school coach, we ran power and counter like what felt like 75% of our offensive plays, right? Was your high school head coach Jim Harbaugh? Uh, he, might, he was the high school version of Jim Harbaugh. Perhaps yeah. Bo Schembechler reincarnate. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was crazy. So, um, But yeah, you, th- you, you think of certain mm-hmm. concepts. Okay, how well do we know these? And, and I think run concepts, generally, you're going to feel more comfortable running more frequently. Pass concepts, okay, maybe I only want to run this concept once or twice, or maybe this is something that I feel really good about and we can run this four or five times over the course of a game. Um, And then you also kind of consider the risks in a given play, right? Cost-benefit analysis here. Like, if I am going to throw deep down the field, okay, maybe I complete that at a lower percentage than I would a shorter pass, but obviously the benefit of completing that pass is really high, right? Maybe I'm scoring on a long play or I'm picking up a uh, a big chunk of yardage that moves my offense uh, across the field, so there's a high reward there. Does that outweigh the risk of an incompletion or interception in that situation? So there's things like that. Those are different things uh, that, that coaches have to consider when building this game plan. Now, we're not going to answer all of those questions, but, but it's just something to kind of keep in mind to get you thinking about 
how coaches approach this type of stuff. And you can see some of these things operationalized in in the day-to-day, even things that I think fans can notice just from TV tape, right? When you don't see a quarterback throw to Richard Sherman's side. That, that That's part of the game plan. Right. Don't throw to Sherman's side, right? Or where you see a, a tight end running kind of a, a, a stick route, a stick route, a stick route, and then you see them run a stick nod, right? That's a sequence of plays. That is, I'm trying to set you up by getting you to see something and then running something off of that. This is the zone read, right? You're running an inside zone, you're running an inside zone, you're running an inside zone, and then all of a sudden you hit him with the zone read, and you can maybe get some quarterback yardage on the backside. So these sequence of plays, and they get infinitely more intricate, right? You're talking about play-action passes with pulling guards, and you're talking about pulling two guards. You're talking about maybe a molly block. You're talking about things that make it look like it's one thing because you've been doing it, doing it, doing it, and then you run a counter or a constraint play, and you can hit that for a big play, or you can make sure that they react a particular way and build off of that. Everything is going to be about what you expect them to do and how you can force them into doing that so that you can then make them predictable and run something that is going to beat that predictable defense. And I think so one of the interesting things that, you know, I always like had questions about uh, in, in regards to different game plans is like how much stuff is on there, right? Like how many plays do we really need? Because we hear so much about like, NFL playbooks are 500 pages. They're like a George yeah. R. Martin novel, essentially. And, and it's just like it's no, never they're not ending. Because they're real. <laughs> George R. R. Martin. And they're finished. Yeah. Uh, so, right? Yeah. No, this um, is this is my favorite. And again, I'm a 12-year-old. I was reading this as I was walking the dogs, and it was like, determine the size and the scope of your package. <laughs> Brian Billick probably wrote that no less than 17 times. And every <laughs> every time he wrote that, I, I legit looked down on my shorts. He needs a giggle at himself. Yeah, I, bit, seriously. I, I was like, determine package. the size and the scope of your package. You're damn right I do. <laughs> um, uh, so, we, so we hear about these like huge playbooks, right? And we see even sometimes like certain coaches on the sidelines on, on game day, right? With these these call sheets that just seem huge and they got a million different colors on them and like all of this different stuff like how much information is actually on those play sheets like what goes into that game plan and and it's actually a, really a lot simpler than you would kind of imagine right you, you if you kind of start with this idea of how many plays do I expect to run over the course of a game if you look at last year in the NFL the average number of plays run by a, a team in a given game was just over 64 like 64 and a half plays Obviously, tempo is going to play a, a part in that, and in but but that flow. number but that number doesn't change considerably because if you yeah. Brian Billick wrote this book in two thousand one and he was doing it really based on what he experienced with the Minnesota Vikings when he was the offensive coordinator, and in this book, which hasn't been updated since he wrote it, he said you know on average NFL offenses run anywhere between like sixty one and sixty eight plays a game, and and we see that to be true and we see that to hold true continually through the NFL now. Yeah. And, and even so somebody like Chip Kelly, right. Who we know, uh, runs at a faster tempo than, than really most of the rest of the league. Even the number of plays that he ran per game, isn't like that much higher than, than that league average. If you look at 2015, they ran just shy of 69 plays a game. Uh, 2014 was the highest during his tenure with the Eagles. That was 70.4. Uh, and in 2013, they were actually just barely above average. It was 65.9. So we're talking about roughly a handful of plays more per game 
with an increased tempo like we, we would see from Chip Kelly. Um, so we, we know that we need to account for roughly that many plays, right, going into end of the week. And what Brian Billick said in his book is that you take that base number and then you basically build in an overage and you you build in a 20 to 30 percent overage, which for a given game gives you about 90 plays. Right. Like you're talking about, you know, some situations, maybe some plays are repeated. Maybe you want a bigger arsenal. Some games maybe you want a smaller arsenal, other games. But you run you you go into a game with roughly 90 plays on your call sheet. And so from there, we got the the total number of plays. The next consideration is is that run pass ratio. Um, how often do I want to run? How often do I want to throw? Like and that's going to be obviously dependent on where I think my strengths lie as an offense. Like if I'm uh, the Vikings of the last several years and I have Adrian Peterson, obviously I'm going to be a little bit more run heavy than most offenses. Whereas if I have somebody like Peyton Manning or or Tom Brady over the last decade or so, I'm probably going to be a little bit more run heavy than most teams or excuse me, pass heavy. Um, So, so your personnel is going to impact that. And then also the defense that you're playing in that given week is going to impact it. You're going up against a team with a really strong run defense. Okay, maybe my game plan is going to be to, to throw a little bit more than I would otherwise in a perfect world. Um, so even though you see like coaches, uh, pretty much every coach in, in the history of football is like preaching balance, right? Every everyone, oh, I want to be balanced on offense. We want to equal run and pass, but the reality really is isn't like that. Like each coach kind of has their preference. If in a perfect world, in kind of these neutral situations, they're going to run the ball more, pass the ball more. They have their preference. So you kind of get that basic run-pass ratio there, and then you start dividing up that total number of plays that we have into, okay, how many run concepts do I need? How many pass concepts do I need? Uh, And then that can kind of help you. Now you start kind of paring down your overall playbook into what is going to actually be practice in that given week. So this is going from the playbook to the game plan, right? You, Brian Billick talks a lot about figuring out how much offense you can handle in a year, a month, and a week. And, and you think about how many plays am I going to run over the course of a year? I thought this was one of the most interesting things about the Brian Billick book is that he worked backwards from the number of plays that you run in a season. And he said, well, if this is roughly how many plays I need, and, and he didn't mean, when we say 90 plays on a play sheet, and Brian Billick says this too in his book, we're not talking about 90 unique different plays. We're talking about maybe like 15 to 20 concepts run from a bunch of different formations. Um, and, and so you can run a, a smash or a sale from four different formations. And that's really two concepts or really one concept kind of, but it's run out of four different formations. When you're looking at like a counter, you can run a counter four different ways, but it's still a counter. So it's a concept that is spanning a bunch of different formations. So when you're taking this and putting it then into a game plan, you want to choose specific, you know, you want to basically have three levels of plays. Um, You've got all the plays in your playbook. You've got the plays that you practice during the week and are included in your game plan. And then you've got the plays that you actually run on game day. You're not going to run all 90 plays that you put in your playbook or I'm sorry, in your game plan on that day. That's just, your menu, your menu of options, and you want enough plays and concepts that you have something for all of the various situations that you might face in the game. And this goes back to Bill Walsh's kind of preparation, right? 
if you're in a third and seven, if you're in a fourth and one, if you're in a fourth and one, or if you're in a fourth and inches, if you're in a second and six, you need to have something to pull off of that menu for every single one of those situations. And that's the fundamental part, the thread that runs through any coach's game plan. It's taking the size and scope of your offensive package, because I love that sentence, (laughs) putting it into a plan that is based on the different situations that you anticipate experiencing in that game so that you can reduce the uncertainty for your players when you see that actual situation arise. And then... You also need to keep in mind, right, how much can you teach again? So it all all gets back to that. Like a plan is only as good as how well you can implement it, right? How well your players can understand it and, and be able to execute it on game day. So while you need to be able to have an, enough there to, to account for all the different situations, you can't go too crazy. You can't have, you know, 200 plays in your game plan because your players just aren't going to be able to absorb that number of plays in a week. So it's just not going to work out, and then performance is going to be lower. So that's definitely, they have to kind of balance that, right? I need to have enough, but not too much. Um, When you start looking at the specific elements of that game plan, right, I think, and coaches will break it down. This is where you, if you imagine that call sheet that you see, uh, you know, the coach holding over his mouth on, on the sideline while he's calling in plays, there's just a what seems like a million different boxes on that call sheet. But I think really, you know, for for at least somebody like us on the outside to, to be able to process that a little bit easier, you can really kind of separate that into two separate parts. And, and one is going to be your base offense, and then the other is going to be situational offense. So base offense is something that I think we've talked about a lot, especially like over the course of this offseason with, you know, all of the episodes, if you haven't listened to them yet, you know, go back and listen to the episodes that we did on Chip Kelly's offense, because that's really what we're we're talking about. There is what are his base plays? What are his base concepts that he likes to do? What are, what are the primary run plays? What are the primary passing concepts that he utilizes? And that's really the thing that makes up the bulk of the offense, right? Like the, the majority of plays come from that base offense. Coaches typically define your base offense as the, the things that you do on first and second down, right? This is what I'm going to run because these are the plays that predominantly take up my play calls. Um, when you look at 2015, 77.7% of plays came on first or second down, which leaves just 22.3% for third or fourth down. So that that 77% there, nearly 78%, that's really what you need to focus on and be good at. That's your base offense. That's kind of where everything starts. And everyone always focuses on third down. And we'll get to third down in a minute because that's part of the situational offense package. But when you think of, of, that, of that statistic specifically for 2015, almost 78% of plays come on first or second down. If you can succeed on first or second down, then generally speaking, you're probably going to have an offense that can sustain success. I can almost guarantee you that if you look at really, really good offenses that have been consistently good, they're going to be offenses that are good on first and second down, not defenses that get lucky on third down for a game or a string of games. And this is a statistic that's been consistent since Brian Billick wrote his book and since Bill Walsh was probably beating this into Brian Billick's head because both of these authors in their books utilize that exact same statistic. But back then they say about 75% of plays are run on first and second down. And so this idea that first and second down and staying on schedule is more important and more sustainable than 
getting chunk yards on third down is not a new idea. It's just an idea that isn't always brought to the fore on ESPN and Sports Talk Radio because the things that stick in your head are the third and seven or the third and four that you didn't get. So when you're looking at the way that you craft an offensive game plan, you want to put your most effort into the place where you spend your most time. And that's first and second down because that accounts for about two thirds of your plays. And so that's your base offense. It's basically what you run first and second down and what you run between the twenties. That's going to be one big chunk of a situation. Um, And incidentally, I think in the book, it also says that about 70 to 75% of your first downs are not gained on third down. They're also gained on first and second down. So not only are most of your plays happening on first and second down, but most of your first downs are gained on first or second down. And third down is just this kind of situation that happens every now and again that you'll have to account for. The the funny thing about that whole situation to me, too, is is this kind of, you know, contrast between the the coaching school thought and then this like new analytics school thought. Right. And how it always seems every article that you read is like painting these as these mortal enemies that just can't agree on anything. But the funny thing is like that, that's something that Billick mentions a lot throughout the book. It's something that Walsh mentions even in, in his book. This is um, stuff Bill, Bill Walsh has been doing since like the late 70s. But this is also one of the very basic tenets of like football outsiders, right? So w- when you go and read kind of the, the, the football outsiders basics, they usually call it, which is these are kind of the, the primary things, the core things that we've learned since we've been doing this whole thing. And, and one of those tenets is that you know, offenses that are good on first and second down tend to sustain success better than offenses that are poor there, but are really good on like third down. Right. And as 49er fans, we know this to be true because during Jim Harbaugh's years, we knew that third down wasn't their strength. The third down conversion for 49ers teams in their in the most recent heyday was anywhere between like 32 and 38 percent. Anything above 40 to 44 percent is a really, really good third down conversion. But what did Jim Harbaugh's offenses do really well? First and second down. They stayed on schedule and they generally didn't need to get to third down to get a first down. And that's why his offenses were sustainable. And I think in 2012, we had like the 11th or 10th best offense in the NFL, but not a very, very good third down offense. And still, that was good enough to get to the Super Bowl and, well, lose. But it was. But they they had consistently won. I mean, I could pull it up here in in just a second, but. They, they had one of the best first down offenses mm-hmm. nearly every year that he was there. Um, from what I remember, like, I think yeah. even they were still pretty good on first down in 2014, if yeah. I remember right. Um, and, and this is it's so interesting because Bill Walsh says it in Finding the Winning Edge. He says a first down is considered successful if you get four or more yards. Like that's your threshold. And also, so that's another thing, right? So you get into that, like that's, this is what coaches are thinking, right? And this is long before the kind of the analytics movement that we we've seen in recent years, the football outsiders and in, in DVOA, which are something that, you know, we talk about a lot. If you you're longtime listeners on the show, you, you kind of know what those things are. All that stuff is based on what, what football outsiders call success points. And the success points are, how many yards did I gain based on the down and distance, right? Like, did I gain enough to keep my offense on schedule? So on first down, for instance, it's 45%, you know, which is lines up right about that four yards, right? So on second down, that moves up. I need 60% of the yards that I need to stay on schedule. And then obviously on third or fourth down, I need 100%. So, So this idea of success points and staying on schedule 
is something that both coaches think about and something that we know uh, makes a lot of sense from an analytics perspective. So uh, it, it's just kind of funny to me how those how well those things line up, even though those are often things that we see as like very separate opposing styles and views. So what are the different situations then that you'll get into when you're building a game plan? Because if you look at a call sheet, you'll notice that oftentimes those call sheets are built are, are broken out in boxes. And those boxes are generally reserved for, it kind of varies from coach to coach, but they're generally reserved for one base offense. That's one of the biggest boxes. And you know, and everything is, is broken down by number of plays that a coach is expecting to run in that area. So when you're building your game plan, you're thinking, okay, on average, I'm going to have this number of plays in my base. I'm probably going to have, and Brian Billick actually breaks it down, right? Every game I on average have like 30 plays in the open field. And like, so I'm basically going to have 30 first and second down calls. Now, I'm also going to have these other situations that I have to build plans for. And that's going to be third down, red zone, four-minute offense, two-minute offense, backed up inside the five, and other special categories. These are things like shot plays. These are the plays that Jim Harbaugh loved to run when they got just inside the 30-yard line. It was like, the oh, look, it's one receiver running a pattern because they wanted to take a shot on a play action. Like These are the special plays. They're like trick plays, right? Yeah. Like you, you think things that are kind of these one-off situations or maybe they take you know the two-minute offense and get even more specific than that in, in the last you know, three plays of a half or, or something like that. So they, 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 you know, other coaches will, will have these very kind of specific things that they look for or things that they'll want to plan out. But the other ones that you mentioned kind of before that, those are, those are the general ones that you'll see pretty much consistent um, regardless of, of who the coaching staff is. And so that's basically, those are the categories that you're going to then put plays into based on the number of plays that you think you're going to run in those categories. So, and as a coach, then you get to choose the mix, right? So if you think, okay, my total plays on first down are probably going to be about 20. I'm probably going to have 20 first down plays. 10 of those are going to be in the first half. I want a 50-50 mix. So my plan then is going to include five runs and five passes. If I think a 70-30 split is probably better, then it's going to be seven runs and three passes for the first half. And then within then, I can break that down even further and say, of my say, let's say I want a 50-50 ratio and I want five passes and I want maybe two seven-step drops, one quick slant, and like two play-action passes. Like Then you start breaking it down to a bit more granular level based on what you want to do based on your opponent. But it's all based within the situation that you're going to call those plays in. So with your base offense... Um, this is where we see. This is why we saw more wham plays with Jim Harbaugh against Detroit because you know they have a penetrating defensive line. What negates a penetrating defensive line? A really good wham block, right? So that gets built into the game plan, and you didn't see that as much against other teams. And so these are the situations that an offensive coordinator prepares for, and they build numbers of plays based on how often they think they're going to see these different types of situations. So everything all goes back to, and again, the sentence is the size and the scope of, of what you expect to see. And if you expect to see 60 plays, you know, 20 of which of, are going to be first downs, 10 of those are going to be in the first half, you then can begin to say, all right, what do I think are going to be my best plays against what they do on first downs in these situations? 
So I think the really interesting thing, at least for for me, about like the situational offense and and kind of everything related to that is that so so on a long term basis, again, kind of getting back to that football outsider stuff long term over the season, multiple seasons. We know that teams that have a good base offense, teams that do well on first and second down, those are the teams that are going to consistently have good offense in general. Whereas if you have a team that they don't do very well on first or second down, but all of a sudden, you know, third down comes around and and they had a season or a stretch of games um, where they were great in that area. They converted a really high percentage. We know that that's not as likely to stick around. Yet, when we, we kind of narrow things down to the, the game-to-game, those special situations, right, those third-down plays, those red zone plays, the plays in the two-minute offense, like, they have this disproportionate impact on the outcome of the game. You know, just, just looking at one specific game, those are the plays that you really need to execute if you hope to be able to, uh, you know, end up winning in the end. Because if you are great on first and second down, but you, you know, turn the ball over or you you throw incomplete passes on third down, that's not doing a lot for you. You move the ball into the red zone and you don't score. You're kicking field goals the whole time. Like that's not going to work out very well for you over the course of, of that game, right? And your chances of winning. Yet we know in the long term, the, the, the likelihood that those things kind of balance themselves out and you end up also being good in the special situations, we, we know that likelihood is high. Um, but from a fan perspective, those are the plays, the smaller plays, the special situations. Those are the things that we focus in on most, right? The, the, what we think is a terrible play call on a third down or the, the terrible play call that we thought that didn't work out in the red zone. Like those are the things that kind of stick with us yet. Really what we should be focusing on is how well is this team doing in their base offense, right? Because that's, what's going to lead to the consistent success. So even though we we place a lot of emphasis and and granted those those plays third down red zone very important right a lot of these other situations very important um, but just because they have such a small sample and, and we're talking about only a handful of plays a game in a lot of situations um, that that we're really dealing with these situations it's much more important to be better in your base offense to be better on first and second down. Yeah, ultimately, what you the kind of thread that you see throughout everything here is that the the base offense, while it isn't as flashy, is the part that's the most consistent. It's the part that you see the most often, and it's if you can do that well, is generally going to move you up and down the field. Third down, I thought was interesting because both Bill Walsh and Brian Billick basically say, "Look, third down is interesting, but not nearly as interesting as your base." Because third down, remember, you only get about 25 to 30% of your first downs on third down. And usually the ones that are fairly easy, you're, you're not going to see very many third down uh, plays in a lot of different situations. Your third and 11 plus, you on average get maybe two a game. Your third and mid range, you're going to see a few more per game, but not a whole hell of a lot. And if everything's going well, you're going to see those like third and like two to three most often. And those are the ones that you can convert. Um, And and so luckily what you can do is you can just prepare for those. You're like, all right, I'm going to see third and 11 two times a game. I'll go ahead and have four plays for that situation. I'm going to see third and four through six or third and two and three about six times total a game. I need maybe about nine or 10 plays for that. 
And, and so that's where you can get really, really narrow in your focus when you're developing those plays. And that's pretty easy. It's more manageable, right? 10 to 12 plays for third down packages is way more manageable than 40 or 50 plays for your base offense over first and second down. And the other thing to really think about there too with with third down specifically and that they mention, you know, in both those books is that the defensive packages that you would expect to see on, on third down, especially right, like in those situations are generally fairly predictable, right? We know that that coaches have a tendency to do certain things on third down. Like um, if you think of Todd Bowles defenses, right, like third down the blitz is probably coming like you're probably about to get like six or seven dudes coming at your quarterback. So there are certain like tendencies like that, that, that really show up on third down that are fairly easy for coaches uh, to kind of zero in on, which makes it easier to prepare for those situations. Now, obviously the execution is a big part of that, but at least going in, because again, you, you have a limited number of plays, you have a defense that's probably, you know, giving you a, a you have a pretty good idea going in of what they're going to do on those third downs. That makes it easier to plan for when you're building this game plan. So you've got, you know, kind of how you build your offense and how you figure out how many offensive plays you need to have in a year. Then you pair that down to and really it's just percentages of plays that you figure you're going to play in a given year. Um, and then you figure out, all right, how many am I going to run in a game? What's that balance going to be? Then you chunk those down into the different situations that you're going to leverage those plays in. And now you get to game day. And now you get to the place where I've always thought was one of the most interesting interesting things, and that's scripting the plays. I don't know about you, but I always thought that scripting plays meant that you had like 15 plays that you were going to run in sequential order. First down, second down, third down, first down, second down, third down, first down, second down. And you just go down the list. But... As I grew up as a football watcher, I realized, wait, that doesn't make any sense because that only works if what you think happens on every play happens on every play. And we know that sometimes you get you get sacked and sometimes there's an incomplete pass and sometimes you think the run's going to get four yards and it really gets negative four yards. And, and so then what happens? When you understand that a call sheet and an offensive game plan isn't really based on like these are the plays I'm going to call in order, but these are the situations I'm going to face. And these are the plays that I think will work in these different situations. A script makes much more sense. The opening clip that, that I played was Mike Malarkey on another podcast talking about whether or not they script plays. And he says it pretty plainly. He says, we've got our base offense, which is first and second down. And we've got those plays scripted out. One, two, one, two, one, two. First down and second down of a game. I know exactly what's going to happen. But then third down is a situation. It's a special situation. Is it third and 11? Is it third and three? Is it third and four? I've got different situational groups for each one of those third down scenarios, and I'm going to call a play based off of that script. And then if I make it, I go back to my base offense category, and I start pulling plays from there. If I don't make it, then we punt, and we wash, rinse, repeat, and do it all over again on my next series. So the script is not a true one, two, three, four, five script, you know, it, it's going to be more of a one, two, now what script? It, it's like the, uh, it, it's like the pirates code in Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> it's right? more of a it's suggestion. More, it's more like guidelines. <laughs> um, and, and so you're, you're going to, you have, you know, say those 15 plays, you're not running them in order no matter what, right? No matter what happens in the, the outcome of those plays, I'm still going with this next play here. That's not how it works. 
You're you're going to okay. First down, I'm going to run this. Second down, I'm going to run this. But once I get into special situations, I'm going to kind of veer from that list a little bit and go into the packages that I've built for those special situations. So it, it kind of helps you. I guess it, it, it helps you based on how you anticipate the game to go, right? It, it kind of gives you this structure for what you expect to happen based on the film study, based on all of that. And, and it's just kind of this starting point, right? I want to see these certain things from the defense, so I'm going to run these certain plays. And then that way, over the rest of the game, maybe you're done with those 15 plays in the first quarter, right? Now I know based on how they reacted to those 15 plays that either A, confirms what I saw on tape and I'm going to kind of continue with the rest of my game plan or B they're they're adjusting a little bit differently than I expected so now I need to make some adjustments on my on my own end so uh, it, it's kind of just a structure this guideline here to work you through the opening part of the game um, to kind of give you a little bit of confidence get your your team knows what's what to expect at that point um, and just kind of way to ease into the game essentially. And this is where you, your game plan has some overages in it, right? We talked earlier about how you, if you know you're going to run about 60 to 65 plays a game, and, or if you're Chip Kelly, you might run 70 on average per game, then you know you should probably have a, a package or a game plan of about 100, 90 to 100 plays. And you might realize that my game plan was to be a bit more run heavy because they are really, really weak against the run as a defense. But I get into the game and I run my script and they're loading up the box. And I realize that, you know what? I can't keep running into this 8, 9, 10-man front. I'm going to need to change what I call within the parameters of the plan. I may have only anticipated running maybe you know, 20 pass plays over the course of the game. But now I'm probably going to have to run 25 or 30. But because I've built overages into my plan, I have an extra set of plays to run from. That's why you build those overages in. That's why you kind of account for everything. And that's where the game day calling of plays becomes super important. Because then you get in those extreme situations where the game completely goes way different than you thought it was going to go. And you thought you were going to run, you know, maybe 30 plays a game. But now you're down 25 points. You're down 28 points. And you're not even out of the first half. You're facing the Pittsburgh Steelers. And you're like, holy crap. <laughs> you can do what the Niners did which is to like kind of keep their plan and keep running what they thought they were going to do. Or you can say, you know what? We're going to even have to go outside of the overages we've built in and call plays that we didn't even practice this week. These are things I'm asking players to recall from training camp on the fly because we didn't even build this into a game plan. And that's how Ari can get on game day. So it, it is really, I think, a fascinating kind of game day thing where, yes, you can plan and plan and plan all you want, but you almost by definition have to plan for the things that you didn't plan for. And even then, if you're a bad team, sometimes you kind of <laughs> have to go even beyond that. Or maybe if you're a bad team, you plan for being bad. And so you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're a bad team, you know, struggles real, right? You're on, you're on that struggle bus week in, week out. But I, I think that's kind of, you know, tying that all in like to how can we use this, as fans, right? So a lot of this stuff is just interesting for the sake of knowing what the the coach's perspective is and kind of what goes into all of this stuff, you know, on a week to week basis because we love this game so much. But more practically, I guess you know, every week there's there's always something, um, especially when things are going bad. It feels like where 
you know, fans are outraged at a particular play call. Like, oh, why did they do this on third down? Because it, you know, that play call didn't work. But hopefully this gives us a little bit more perspective into what goes into that. And really a lot of this stuff is planned ahead of time. And and we shouldn't focus too much on like a, a single or a couple of play calls, right? Right. Really what we should be looking at to determine at the end of the week, like, okay, do the coaches have a good game plan going into this is, well, I, I guess first off I should mention, we, we don't really know exactly, right? Like without being in those meeting rooms, without knowing what went into building that game plan, we can't ever say with any sort of certainty that like, okay, this was a good plan or this was a bad plan. But what we can kind of reasonably assume is that the team and the coaches went out there and they did, they gave their best effort to execute the game plan that they built throughout the week, right? Like, there's really no reason to expect anything different than that. So we can start to look at kind of these broader trends, right? Like, if if the team had a really heavy emphasis on the run game in that week, we can kind of determine that, okay, that was definitely within the game plan. That was something that they they planned ahead of time that they wanted to be able to run the ball. And then we can kind of evaluate whether that was good or bad based on what we know about the defense going into it, right? If this was a, a great run defense going into it, and then this was somehow their, their plan that they were going to run the ball into the, the teeth of this good defense. Okay. We can probably criticize that a little bit. We can probably say this was a poor game plan going into it, but if that defense was terrible, if they were, you know, one of the bottom five defenses against the run and they still tried to run the ball a lot, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out. The players didn't execute some random things that you couldn't really account for happened during the course of the game, and they just weren't successful running the ball. Well, then that wasn't really a bad game plan, right? They, they had the right idea. They had the correct information going into it. They had the right plan. It just didn't work out how they expected it to. And, and unfortunately, that's going to happen from time to time, right? You know that that's going to happen. But this kind of frame of reference, knowing what goes into it a little bit, should help us be able to better evaluate game plans and, and certain play calls and things like that um, while the season is actually going on and make us more informed. Ultimately, what what I think the takeaway from all this for both of us is the process is definitely different than at least I thought it was going into a game plan. I would have thought that you know a, a team says like, well, what do we do well? Let's go ahead and build a plan around that and then we'll go from there. And then you have this just, bank of plays that you call from and sometimes you're going to call that play on third down and sometimes you're going to call that play on on second and short sometimes you're going to call that play at the goal line but you're always pulling from this big bank of plays and really it's not like that you have plays that are designed for certain situations and you install them and you practice them in a given week and your hope is that you see those situations and the defense is going to react the way that you expect them to react and then your play is meant to beat that and and that is, I think, a different way of evaluating the way that plays are called on first and second down. It reduces the importance of third down. It makes it so that you can begin to see some tendencies that you may not have seen before, knowing that each coach treats each situation a little bit differently. When you're Brian Billick talks about being backed up on your own goal line, um, and th- what's the quote from um, Bobby Bowden that he says in the oh. book? Hang loose. One of us is about to score. Yeah, like that. That's and that's uh, I love that uh, that approach because, you know, when you're you're backed up against your own goal line, we know that, you know, the other team is more likely to score because if they stay conservative, which is kind of the norm among NFL coaches, 
They're probably going to punt the ball away. They're, the other team's going to get the ball in good field position. They're going to have a really good opportunity to score. Whereas if you take a kind of more aggressive approach in that situation as an offense, you take a shot deep. And this was something that that Bobby Bowden's Florida State teams were really known for. Like when they're backed up, that was when they took a lot of their shots deep downfield because you also see defenses kind of anticipating that conservative play from the offense, right? So you have some opportunities there. If you're willing to take a little bit of risk, you have a chance to get a big play and really set your offense up in a good position. Whereas, yeah, maybe they're the chances of you throwing an interception or something like that are higher. But you know what? Even if you played it conservatively, the other team had a pretty good chance of, of scoring on their next possession anyway. So, hey, might as well we'll take a risk and uh, see what happens. And that's all part of your plan, right? That's how you build those plays into those situations. So, you know, I thought it was reading these books. I thought it was super interesting that, you know, they, they started out much like most people start out looking at problems in their job. And that's what's my scope? What is the thing I have to solve here? Oh, I have to solve about 60 plays a game. Well, let me go ahead and build it an overage. So I'm going to go ahead and go 90. And then what are the different situations I have to solve for in this game? And I'm going to pick plays and install plays that are going to solve my problems in those specific situations. And then I'm going to build all of this so that I can reduce the most amount of uncertainty for my players in a given week. Because when they're playing quick, when they play without hesitation, they're going to play their best in the way that lets their talent kind of come out. Um, and, and so I think all that put together creates a, a very different picture than I would have thought going into a game plan, you know, the importance on base offense, first and second down lack of importance on third down, all of that stuff I think is super interesting when you're thinking about football in a different way that, uh, that I wouldn't have thought of going into this entire exercise. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, it kind of changes your perspective when you're watching games on Sunday, because, uh, again, this stuff is is not easy to evaluate, even as it's happened, because we just don't have the amount of information, you know, that we really need to to evaluate it properly. So we're we're always looking for things that give us as much information as possible, right? Give us as complete of a picture as possible. Um, and so when we have a little bit of perspective as to how coaches are approaching these sort of problems, that should allow us to better evaluate how those things work out over the course of a game and, and allow us to be kind of better fans. So we've talked a lot about, you know, again, with the Chip Kelly stuff and and even a lot of what we did uh, with Ski Month last year and, and really most of our, our episodes kind of focus on the specifics, right? The the specific plays and concepts that the team was running, um, really kind of getting into these very specific situations Hopefully you guys enjoyed kind of this step out, right? Like how does all of this stuff come together? How do coaches approach this so that we can, you know, see the product that we see on game day. And, and that about does it for this episode. Um, now that we have different outro music, it's only like, this is like only a minute and, and a half. So I think we might have to like do some of our outro before we kick the music up because it usually runs a little bit longer, but um, we've already given up Twitter handle. So don't worry too much about that, but we're back pretty much on a regular schedule ski month. You're going to get an episode every single week for the next four weeks uh and then after that we're going to take a bit of a pause at least for one week because david is moving to pittsburgh it's true yeah we mentioned it before but it's it's still really happening um going yeah. going away um so yeah we'll take a, a brief pause there but i mean really we we should be back on our normal schedule week in week out like throughout we're going to be you know scheme month is going to take us into the preseason obviously preseason takes us into the regular season and we'll be uh, you know, every week from that point. So 
Uh, should not big have things. any more. Yeah, hiatus is uh, big things are schedule. happening for David. He's uh, moving to Pittsburgh. He has got a job, did, like evaluating film for a website that we cite frequently. Oh um, yeah, yeah. You guys might have heard of it. Yeah. It's uh, it's called Pro Football Focus. Yep. I'm gonna be doing some stuff for them. So, uh, yeah, it'll be great. I mean, it won't change our our podcast schedule at all. Um, but what it will mean is that we have uh, a lot of great information from Pro Football Focus. Yeah. Because uh, David's we lost got that, a little bit of that that non fan membership. He's gonna have the access to all the stuff we used to have before Chris Collinsworth bought that site and locked it all down, <laughs> um, um, which is gonna be amazing. Um, so that's gonna help a lot. But. Yeah, we're excited to get back into the swing of things and get back to talking about the game that we know and love. So I'm going to go ahead and kick the intro music now again because I think we have enough time now. Um, yeah, let yeah. us know. Oh, what? Oh, did we get it? Oh, uh, wait, hold on. Oh, no. Oh, no. Here's what I did. Hold on. Watch this. Oh, I see what you did. Ah, uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, you guys have to, I mean, look, we get, we get, we get it that it's not real music. But you know, this is podcast life. We gotta we gotta come into real podcast life. We have enough listeners that we're we're definitely in danger of breaking some copyright law. Yeah. Um so, and we don't wanna do that. We don't have that kind nope. of cash. We don't have that kind of cash for us. Absolutely not. All right. <laughs> I'll sum a sixteen. <laughs> um, so that about does it for this episode. Always hit us up on the Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Better Rivals. David, where can they find you? At David Newman with an underscore. Um also uh, give us a review on iTunes, right? Yep. Like, give us a review on iTunes. Uh, it super only helps if it's out. Good as usual. It super helps out. It definitely puts us up on the iTunes rankings uh, because eventually you'll probably hear a sponsor or two on this show, and we want to be able to say like, yeah, look, people like us generally, unless yeah. we get too drunk and start stumbling over our words. <laughs> um, I think then people like us more. I think sometimes. so too. Yeah. Oh man, drunk tweets. I'm gonna do that too. Oh man, that that uh <laughs> that episode right after the draft that was. That was a drunk episode yep, for you. Yeah, I was drunk, yeah. but thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm going to try and time this the music. But as always, go Niners. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. <laughs>